Good morning. Isn't it great to be in the will of God? Some of you are like, I don't know what that means. It's Sunday, it's early. You got to be crazy. Yeah, I mean, to just to wake up and know that, you know, if you're a believer this morning, that you brought Christ with you into this room. That uh, as we sing these songs, as we listen to the word preached, the Holy Spirit is witnessing to our hearts the power of what we're doing. It feels so good. I mean, there are times that are better days than other days. I mean, sometimes we're kind of dragging and it's, it's hard to get into it. But when we get up and we do it the right way, I was just talking to a guy before the service, you know, favorite time of the day, he said, was to get up, make himself some coffee, get out his Bible and go sit on the deck. Uh, before the family wakes up and just spend time with God and that's so true but then we have other days don't we where we've been up all night crying babies uh, you know we're, we're feeling ill uh, there's worry in our hearts uh, things aren't going right financial pressures and th those days are a little more difficult but still even on our worst day if you know the Lord you know what it's like to walk in his will you know his pleasure. Uh, to wake up in the morning and know that you can just say without any fanfare, without any ceremony, good morning, God. It's so great to have you in my life. Thank you so much. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for your redemption. Thank you for the wisdom that you promised to give to us. All we have to do is ask. Those, those are amazing thoughts. And as you look at ministries and you, you see people in churches who are doing the ministry and you think, wow, you know, those people, they are the ones that really feel the power of God. And they're so confident. Sometimes we can turn on the TV and they're on there talking. And sometimes uh, we just run into people at work who seem to have an overabundance of zeal and uh, strength in speaking about God. And it's easy, I think, at times to think that those people have a special inner track to the Lord, when in fact that's not the case at all, right? I think it starts off innocently enough. Uh, we're, we're excited about God. We begin to build and grow and experience. Uh, some take that initial step to have the boldness to open up God's Bible and start teaching out of it, start preaching out of it. And they get good, positive feedback. And, oh, yes, this is great. And we hear words like special anointing. This guy has been anointed by God to share. Uh, we, we hear people say, you've touched my life. And things start rolling, and time goes on, and it's so good. And then somehow the wheels fall off. We see this in the news all the time. Uh, people that we so admire and so respect and seem so capable, so educated, so, so in tune with God. And then flesh shows up. Sin comes out. Uh, we hear the reports, you know, this man that I trusted so much is, in fact, he's had an affair He's got several women. This is not just a one-time event. It's been repeated over and over. And we, we see the biggest churches in America, the ones that people 
attend most often and listen to on radio and on radio did I say radio sorry uh, TV you know or on the computer uh, Wow what happened how did they get to this place uh, it's just so disheartening we need objective truth we need something that keeps us where we're supposed to be it's too easy to listen to someone say well God has shown me and you think who's crazy enough to believe this malarkey that they're preaching that they're teaching what woman would come into one of these men's presence and hear him say even though they knew he was married I'm going to especially take you to be my bride of Christ and yet we do we hear it some of us are so insecure, so longing to have God in our life that just when anybody decides to say, this is the way of God, we're willing to follow them. And we say, well, they must have known. They must have that special track with God. That which I once thought was wrong, they're telling me now it's right. The fact is, it's wrong. Ministries crumble. Empires for Christ explode. People are left ravaged and sorrowful, promising they're never, ever going to belong to a church again. What happened? We need something. We can't rely upon the subjectivity of the feelings that we have. When I said, isn't it great to be in the will of God? I meant that. But there's still an objective set of rules, guidelines, if you will, that we all must follow. That's why we're doing these words to live by. If we recognize that this 10 of 10 commandments that God created and had Moses write down, and Jesus pretty much repeats. If we understand that, then those things that I was just referencing can't happen. If ever you see a person who claims to be hearing from God say something to you that violates one of these commandments, then you know this is not of God. I think it was sincere to begin with. I think that they really did have the power of the Spirit to communicate in an effective way, perhaps better than just your everyday run-of-the-mill pastor. But somehow they began to believe their own press. Somehow those inner voices ceased to be the Holy Spirit and became, in fact, the voice of the enemy. And they listened. And they worshipped a false god. They spoke a false prophecy. And many people are hurt. How can you recover? Well, my call to us this morning is to do just what we've been doing. To understand that there are ten commandments. In almost every ministry that gets in trouble, almost every church that finds itself following a self-proclaimed Messiah has lost sight of at least one of these commandments, if not several. We can't live without them. Yeah. I love John Piper. He writes this. The Ten Commandments are rules. 
but they're not arbitrary. They're not man-made rules. They are God's Ten Commandments. They're big, they're bold, they're bright signs guiding us away from the regions of darkness and death and towards the upland plains of light and life in Christ. The problem is, in our sin, we hate being told what to do. We think we know better. I know I do at times. We look at temptations that cannot make our lives better, and we think, hmm, that would make my life better. The Ten Commandments point towards Sodom and Gomorrah, and they warn us, you don't want to go there. Yet we look over at that barren wasteland and think, that must be my Garden of Eden. And here's how this process works. It's like putting your toe into a swimming pool to see how cold it is or maybe how warm. And when we do that, and if we feel that it's tepid, and we go, hmm, that's not too bad, I can handle this. And then you put your leg in. And then you put the other leg in. And give it a minute or two, and you'll immerse yourself into it. And we do that with sin with things that we know violate these Ten Commandments. We, we just try it. Well, I'm living for Christ 99% of the time, but I'm just going to watch this TV show. I'm just going to look at this on my computer. I'm just going to send a text to that person at work that I really think is exciting, titillating. Let me try it. Nothing's happening. Lightning hasn't struck me. Wow. I didn't come down with cancer overnight. Okay, God, you understand. I'm just a man of flesh. I'm just a man of weakness. I need these things in my life. And you think, that's crazy talk. But we believe it. We do it. It's a process. No, we're not going to come back to these Ten Commandments for an objective truth check. We can't do that, because if we were to do that, we would know that we are living in sin and that we cannot dip our toe into the world and live like the world lives. Unfortunately, we've been trained to view these commandments by our culture as if they are unjust, unnecessarily limiting, and certainly designed to keep us from finding fulfillment in our life. So our decision is we just ignore them or only reference them when they suit us. We'll trot them out readily enough when our own children begin to show the same waywardness that we have already demonstrated, right? We come to them and say, hey, uh, I, 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 hold on a second. I've got a solution for this problem for you. Let me find my copy of the Ten Commandments. I know it's around here somewhere. Yeah, it's easy to preach to someone else. But I think we're really missing what God is trying to say to us. He's saying, no, listen, these aren't here to limit you, to keep you from fulfilling life. These are here to, in fact, provide you with life so that you can understand that even the man or woman who is the closest to God needs these commandments. We never outgrow them. We never outlive them. 
They are supposed to be our guidelines forever. We know that for several reasons, but I, I often think about the fact that, you know, it, it's like being in school. When I was in grade school, uh, boy, I, I didn't like the rules. I didn't want them to be there. Sometimes I would think, well, all I have to do is be the best student I can be, and the teacher will allow me to do whatever I want. And in fact, there are teachers like that. But not Mrs. Maxner. Not Mrs. Maxner in fourth grade. She had a fearsome reputation. Everybody that was coming from third grade in my grade school, there were two sections in fourth grade. We didn't want to be in Mrs. Maxner's room. We had heard way too many stories about her. Nobody gets away with anything in there. The other teacher, she was fun, right? Uh, we could play those little flute things. What are they, recorders? You know, and she's the one who taught those, and boy, that would be fun. And she had clay, and we could play with clay. And you know, she gave you free time during the day. And what a learning education experience. But Mrs. Maxner was old school. Now, my principal probably realized that I couldn't handle that kind of freedom. So I was put in Mrs. Maxner's class. And right on the chalkboard, first day of school, from day one, she had her list of rules, what we were not allowed to do. If you will, her own 10 commandments, but I think there was only like five. But you realize that behind those rules, the power of those rules, there was the person of Mrs. Maxner. And she just gave that vibe, like, I do not want to confront her. I don't want to get on her bad side. So even though I was continuously, it had been my habit, looking for a way to get around the rules, to somehow smooth the teacher over so I could do what I wanted to do, in that classroom, for that entire year, I came to class every day, and I sat there, and I did what she said. What an experience. I soon learned that those rules and the person of Mrs. Maxner weren't there to limit me, but in fact, I learned more in that one year of school than I had learned in all the previous years. Because with the rules, with the guidelines, came freedom right? Freedom from the things that usually went on in a classroom. There's an undercurrent that parents and teachers usually don't get to see. Uh, undercurrent of threats, of uh, bravado, of fights, uh, of sometimes just plain laziness. But it was always there, rumbling. Wait till you get out to the playground. Wait till you walk home from school. You know, the, the, there's things that are going to happen. But in Mrs. Maxner's class, because of her rules, there was freedom. There was safety. I could actually work on my classroom work and not be looking over my shoulder all day long. That's the way it's supposed to be. When I got done with that fourth grade, I, I, I just was so appreciative of her. She and I had many great talks, and they were not about me going to the principal. We never got started down that road. Uh, my mom used to say that I had a special chair in the principal's office with my name on it. Fourth grade, I didn't visit her once because the rules were so clear. I didn't have to guess if this would be okay. I, I knew the consequences if I chose to break them. 
My only regret in having Mrs. Maxner was that she didn't teach fifth and sixth grade as well. Right? You see, the Ten Commandments are God's way of creating a safe living experience. God knows that left to ourselves, we act selfishly, living for self-gratification, possibly harming others in so doing. There would be murder, theft, promiscuity, corruption, resulting in fear and despair. If there is a God and he is the one whom the Bible portrays, and you know his love language is obedience to these boundaries. He created these commandments. And just like in Mrs. Maxner class, it's not the Ten Commandments. It's not that they're so exhaustive that you can't get around them, that you, you, you can't put your toe in the water. He'll let you do that. It's the person behind them. It's God himself, Jehovah God. When I think back to Mrs. Maxner, you know, I don't think of her standing in front of the class with a yardstick. That's the image I had been given of her by other students who had already had her. She was tough. But instead, I see that old face, those blue eyes, the little smile lines in the corners of her eyes. Such kindness. Such love. I knew Mrs. Maxner for years afterwards. She lived in an apartment complex you know how it is when you're in school and you see a teacher outside of the classroom? It's like surreal. You actually exist. You live out somewhere. And then she actually went out to dinner with my mom and some of her friends, and she was sitting at the table with us, and I watched her closely. And she was Mrs. Baxter, even at dinner. She didn't change. And I'll tell you what, I didn't change. I didn't go back to being something like I had been with her around. I didn't want to disappoint her. Ten Commandments, God gave them to us. You don't need to dip your toe into the world. Uh, unfortunately, we've seen way too often that in the economy of freedom that God gives us, there probably isn't going to be a lightning strike if you break one of these commandments. There isn't going to be something so obvious that says, oh, Dave, get back. Get back behind your wall of the Ten Commandments. He, God is upset. God is angry. But yet when we read through the Old Testament, from the beginning to the end, to the book of Malachi, it is nothing but God saying to his people, you have broken my commandments over and over and over. I'm so disappointed in you. Oh, how I loved you. I would have gathered you to myself. And the cool thing about it is that he uses a metaphor constantly through the Old Testament. You are my wife. I loved you. You're my bride. Oh, I cherished you. I wanted you to see me as your husband. I could have provided for you, protected you, sustained you. I would have done everything you needed, but no, you went a-whoring after other gods. Moloch, Baal, Ashtaroth. The Egyptian gods, you thought they were better than me. You are guilty of what? Adultery. That's where we're at this morning. The seventh commandment. Just two little words in the Hebrew, right? Not hard to understand. Lo nafa. Do not, lo, do not commit 
adultery. This is just as part of what God's lifestyle for us is about. Truth and purity in your sexual life. I'm really just kind of amazed that he leaves it to this point in his commandments. First four at least, maybe five, deal with him. You know, well, we're not going to have any other gods before you. We're not going to make anything that looks like you to worship that. We're not going to use your name in a song down the line. But we get to this one, and along with the fifth commandment, we understand that God has a family code. It's very important to him. Honor your father and mother, he said already. We went through that a couple of weeks ago. And now he's saying, you shall not commit adultery. And yet his people do this all the time. And it's still going on today. Spiritually, physically, emotionally, within marriage, without marriage. Uh, it's an amazing commandment. This commandment gets broken a lot. It's just basically this. Do not have sex with someone who's not your spouse. That doesn't sit too well in our culture today, does it? It's so limiting. You know? it's, it's, it's unnecessarily harsh. What kind of God does he think he is? And you, his people, who would dare proclaim this commandment, you don't know. I find living together suits me. It fits me. It's what I like to do. I, if I hear this one more time, my wife and I, we do so much marriage counseling, we seem to get a lot of it. If we hear one more person say, I know God wants me to be happy, therefore he's given me the freedom to leave my wife and my children and go off with this other person. Wrong. Just in case you had a question, in case you were thinking of dipping your toe in that water, just let me say to this to you right now, wrong Wrong, 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 wrong. God sanctifies marriage. Marriage is there because God wants us to have a living experience of what he sees our relationship with him to be like. He is our God. And for his chosen people, he says, you are my bride. In the New Testament, it's not just an Old Testament concept, but in the New Testament, Jesus does the same thing. He says... The church is my bride. I want it to be prepared for my return. And how is it prepared? By being spotless, by being pure, by being prepared in every possible way for him to come back. Are you worthy for the God of this universe to come back and take you home to be with you? Think of when you got married. How much preparation went into that? Ah, you got the tuxedo, you got the wedding dress, you've got your guests invited, you've got food. Some poor couples, they work so hard at this preparation for this sometimes 20-minute, 30-minute ceremony at the most. They're indebted for the next 10 years, or at least their families are, and I'm the dad of three daughters, so I know exactly what I'm talking about. It's rough. And then you watch. One year, two years, three years, and that relationship, there's, there's cracks that begin to demonstrate themselves. And 
there's a lack of fulfillment and there's not happiness and kids are calling you on the phone if you're the parents or grandparents saying, you know, Jack isn't treating me right and, you know, Cindy has decided there's a guy at work and you're just like, wait, wait a minute. I was there when Jack gave his life to Christ. I was there when I watched Cindy teach Sunday school. How can this be happening in this sanctified relationship? And God is asking the same thing this morning. How can we sit here in these pews, sing these songs, hear the word, and we're a whoring after other gods? We're pursuing that which God never intended for us to pursue. Everyone feels some disappointment in marriage, right? Everyone but my wife, <laughs> right? Now, everyone, including my wife, feels a disappointment. There are days you wake up and you're thinking, well, ah, how did I get in this situation? And it's so easy to get astray and to start moving off to find someone else. And you know what? We have an enemy, according to Scripture, and he is so clever. And on those days in particular, there's someone that you know somewhere who gives you that look, who makes you feel like you used to feel. I've told you this before, but I met Ione when I was 12 years old. (laughs) For me... I fell in love with her instantly. Uh, this is great. This is the best. I didn't tell her, of course. <laughs> She's four years older than me. Good grief. You know, I thought, well, maybe someday I'll go to the home and tell her my love. <laughs> but no, time went on. I told my brother, who led me to Christ, and he said, well, you know, Dave, as a Christian, you can start praying for these things. Let's just pray and say, God, if this is your will for you to be with this woman... And I said, Dean, I want to dedicate my life to serving God. He rescued me out of such filth. How can I not return my entire life to him? And Dean said, yeah. And I said, so I don't want to get messed up with the wrong person. But there was one woman in our youth group who so loved Christ, who cried when she led us in Bible studies. If you, some of you women have been with Iona in Bible study, you know this is now a regular occurrence. It, I shouldn't have fallen for it, but I did. But she just showed her passion for Christ every time we met. And I thought, if there's one woman that I can go into ministry with, it's her. Long story short, God allowed that to happen. We dated for five years, you know. Next year, we'll be married for 40 And I'm telling you, I'm just beginning to learn the complexities of her. And it's amazing. It's wonderful. I had Howard Hendricks, one of my professors in seminary. He was in his 70s when I had him. And he stood up in front of us as training pastors. And he said to us, men, I'm 76 years old. And I would put my sex life up against yours any day of the week. I'm in love with Jeannie. She is so amazing. And he says, my greatest hope is that someday on my tombstone it will say, Howie was the best husband and father he could be. I don't care about academic accolades. I don't care about making a billion dollars. 
I just want that to be the case. What a challenge. What's your goal in life this morning? What do you want people to know you for? Toe dipping? Or the best husband and father Dave could be? Wow. Well, now you're saying this adultery thing, this limitation, these Ten Commandments, this is just Old Testament. This is Old Testament stuff. And I'm telling you, no, it's not. All we have to do is look at Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to turn there real quick. So we have Deuteronomy 5, right? The repeat of the Ten Commandments, where Moses is writing down for a second time for the children of Israel as they're going into the land of Canaan. Remember these Ten Commandments. Because the people you're going to go and invade, they have violated every one of these and with regularity. So take these with you, live by them. And then they sat there. And literally, truthfully, from time to time, they had to be recovered from some moldy library shelf and brought out, dusted off, and reread. And when that happened, almost every time, there was revival in Israel. The last one was under King Josiah. And people were like, wow, that's God's rules? Why didn't we know this? And I'm telling you, God designed this for us forever. Well, Jesus gets to us, and in the Sermon on the Mount, we've already probably talked about this. I'm not here at Central Campus every week, but I'm assuming uh, the guys have been preaching through this. But when we look at what Jesus is saying, we have six antithetical statements where Jesus introduces each one that says, you've heard it said meaning you were trained in this. He's speaking to Jewish people who were raised in the synagogue system. They understood. And he says, you've heard it said, this is the way you should go. But I say to you, and there's always that contrastive conjunction, but I say to you, so he says, you've heard it said, a repeat of the commandment, and now I'm going to tell you what God really intended when he gave it to us, right? The commandment this time in verse 27 is you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, and this is Jesus' expansion of that, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now up to this point, the brethren had felt like, well, unless I'm committing a physical act with another person, Unless there's intercourse, then I'm free. I can do everything else, but I haven't committed adultery. And Jesus is saying, oh, hold on. Every time he reiterates one of these commandments, he's basically saying, this is what God intended in the first place. It's not like he's adding on to it. And in fact, he's not disagreeing with that commandment. He says, you have heard it that it was said. What he's really taking issue with is the interpretation that was happening with these commandments in between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. There were religious classes of people, Pharisees, scribes, the Sanhedrin, that would spend time writing down, just like we do today, commentaries on the various passages of the Old Testament. And one of the things they said in all their wisdom, was that you would have to be in a physical relationship with another person while married or while they were married in order for you to commit adultery, to be guilty of this commandment. 
But Jesus says that's not what God intended. When he gave this commandment, he really intended the people to understand that all you have to do is have lustful intent. Now, let me clarify this, because sometimes I've heard this taught, and this is not what this is saying. Sometimes people say, yeah, so anytime that you have a thought that comes into your mind, a lustful thought, you are guilty of adultery. We're not responsible for every thought that comes into our mind. We do have an enemy that can penetrate our mind and give us thoughts. We see a girl walking down the street, bam! You know, you go by a billboard on your way to work, bam! And you have that lustful thought. That's not what Jesus is talking about. You can deal with that. You can just take a, the actions that you need to expel that thought from your soul, take that thought captive, get rid of it, but that doesn't make you guilty of adultery. When he says lustful intent here, he means that you have taken it and you, instead of rejecting it, have adopted it. You've mulled over it. You've meditated upon it. You've actually made plans with it. It is an action. It is not a passive role. It is an active role. Anyone who looks at a woman, and he's speaking to the men here, just in case you missed that, guys, with lustful intent, however the application is to all of us, has already committed adultery. You don't need to have the physical relationship. That's not what the requirement is. You can do it now. Wilkins says, it is the meditative scene that leads to objectified desiring that ends in self-justified consuming of that which is off limits. Sex outside of marriage is about consumption. Adultery is about consumption. Like, you shall not kill told us that people were not expendable. You shall not commit adultery means that people are not consumable. The acquisition of pleasure in the short term, the thin appearance of love, the joining of what God has not joined. One morning I was here at the, my office, and my office door swung open with a bang. And there was this woman standing there crying. Seems that she'd been getting ready for work that morning. And as she went into her bathroom that her husband had just been in, she saw his cell phone laying right there on the edge of the sink. And curiously, she picked it up, and she's just going to return it to him, but she just happened to know it was left on his text page. And there was a conversation between her husband and someone that she didn't know. But it was all about love, intimacy, you make my heart sing. And she was crushed. Who is this person? He used to talk to me like this. Now, who is he talking to? She confronted him. He confessed. There was someone at work. And it killed her. She didn't know what to do. He immediately felt terrible. He felt horrible. And she went out the door. So I had to call him, say, come on in. We need to talk. He wanted to be there. Sometimes we're not so lucky when we do marriage counseling. 
That other person's already way down the road. They don't want to come back. But this time, he did. And my wife was there, and she does marriage counseling with me. And we kind of talked to how are we going to approach this. And I own, for some reason, says, can I handle this one? Sure. So when he got there and sat down, my wife started talking to him about the beauty of marriage. I told you she was married to me. (laughs) The importance of fidelity. But I wasn't prepared for what happened next. Her tone took on a seriousness. And I'll just say it, a ferocity that I have rarely heard from her. As she asked this man to think about the fact that not only did his actions impact his marriage, but how they were impacting this other woman's future relationships, and hopefully someday her marriage. Because this man told us that he had really no intention of ending his marriage to his wife. He was just playing. It was a feeling. Uh, This was just something that happened as if he had no control over it. In other words, if I have a feeling, I have no choice but to act on it. Wrong. You can't. This other word, in other words, I just wasn't prepared for this. I fell into this. And that's the way the enemy works. And if left unchecked, who knows where that relationship would have gone. Well, after Ion was done talking with him, he repented. He promised that he was going to deal with this. He wrote that lady a letter saying how wrong he had been, asking her forgiveness. He asked his wife her forgiveness. Praise God. She was in the right mode, the right mood. And she did. She forgave him. All I can tell you is that today this couple is thriving. They're having a wonderful time. But oh, so close, so close. He who looks on a woman with lustful intent is already guilty of adultery. How seriously does Christ take adultery? Let's keep reading that section that I started. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now those of you who know me know that I don't have a right eye, and I just want to set the record straight, it wasn't because of this particular sin. Yes. Uh, Yeah, but, you know, I don't think Jesus is preaching self-mutilation here. I don't think that if you're struggling in this area that he really wants you to get a pair of pliers and pull that eye out. Most Jewish scholars believe that the right hand is referring to the male member. He's just saying it'd be better to lose something like that and still have your way your path paved to be with the Father than to, work, to risk losing it all. It's a little bit of hyperbole. It's a figure of speech. And we say, well, you know, Dave, I appreciate it. Well, you're, you're sounding really good this morning. It's eloquent, but I've never had this kind of relationship. I, I'm not guilty of this. I'm, it's not a problem. For, oh, hold on. The greatest threat to marriage today in our culture 
has got to be, at least with my experience in counseling, is pornography. Oh, now you're, you're getting a little too close to home. Pornography is just rampant, right? In our culture today, according to the National Representative Survey, 84.4% of all 14 to 18-year-old males and 57% of 14 to 18-year-old females have viewed pornography. That's a lot of viewing for an industry that claims to be an adult entertainment. According to the data from the SEMrush Traffic Analytics Tool of May 2021, porn sites receive more website traffic in the United States than, listen to this, Twitter, Instagram, Netflix, Pinterest, and LinkedIn combined. Every second of the day, over $3,000 is spent on porn in this country. 88% of all porn movies show physical aggression. 49% show verbal aggression. We live in a society that is saturated with porn. You, you can't get around it. I remember being at uh, a missions conference, Urbana, 1979. And Billy Graham had a little talk with us as men. Uh, just a few of us came to this. You had your choice of workshops. I, I just felt so privileged to be there. And he was saying to us, guys, I don't know how you're living a righteous life today. Compared to when I was a teenager, you guys face such temptations. That was 1979. How do we do it today? How do we ensure that our sons and grandsons and our granddaughters, there's an increasing number of females that are addicted to pornography. How do we keep that stuff away from them? And it's not just in the world. It's in the church. Pornography is part of the church as well. 63% of church people have used pornography. 7% of pastors report that their church ministry actually deals with this issue. The rest, we know it's out there, but we don't do anything about it. Now, one in five youth pastors confess to being addicted to pornography. Now, if they're confessing it, that means that they've gotten in trouble somehow. So I'm going to say that's probably a very low number. It's more probably like three to, out of five. One out of seven senior pastors have confessed. Again, increase that. Nearly 27% of teenagers receive sex texts. 15% are sending them. 51% of males and 32% of females report that they've accessed porn before their teenage years. The early sexualization of children is a huge problem in our culture. Kids who do not have the emotional or physical ability to process this stuff are being introduced to such videos of perversion, it boggles your mind. And what are they supposed to do with that? Well, like some of them, they get hooked on this. They have different expectations. This is a huge problem for marriages, for families, and for society. It's not a victimless act. Sometimes I hear that said, well, I'm not hurting anyone when I do this wrong. 68% of divorce cases involved one party meeting a new lover on the internet. 56% involved one party having an obsessive interest in their pornography. When I say obsessive interest, it means that they are bold, they're upfront. They're actually sitting there in their living room 
looking at this stuff in front of their wife and in some cases in front of their kids. I used to be on the board of our library back in Nebraska. And we tried to make sure that our computers were filtered so that people couldn't come and use the computers there to access pornography. And we were threatened legally. By whom? By the American Library Association. This was curtailment of free speech. You can't do that. So we had no choice, but there were two men uh, that came in on a fairly regular basis. And even though these computers were out in the open area, they would access this stuff. How do you stop it? 70% of wives of sex addicts report that they suffer from PTSD. Prolonged exposure to pornography diminishes trust between couples. They lose their intimacy. There's the comparison. There's the feeling of inadequacy. Uh, the belief that promiscuity is a natural condition. And then there's a lack of attraction to family and child raising. I've worked personally with registered sex offenders for years. When they came out of prison, they needed a church to go to. And I can just tell you, listening to their testimony, almost all of them report a childhood addiction to pornography. What are we going to do about this? I just want to speak to you who may be stuck in this habit today. I speak to you with grace, with compassion. You want to go back and live in the spirit of these Ten Commandments. You want to put this away. We have to free ourselves from this. The church has to be purified. No one in the world trusts the church anymore. Because on one hand, we say we all have to be righteous. We have to be men of purity. And then they look at what's happening in our marriages. And they're crumbling. In our churches, the pastors are failing. Some of us are victims of this. You've been living with a man or a woman that is stuck on this, and you know firsthand the pain that adultery causes. Dads and moms missing from homes because they went off to start new homes. Sexual abuse, self-trafficking, sex trafficking, excuse me, the spread of STDs, emotional, mental abuse, feelings of abandonment, betrayal, and the twisting of the human soul by the darkest and most embarrassing shameful perversions imaginable. People, we're living in Canaan, and unfortunately, unlike the children of Israel, we're not removing it, we're bringing it in. We're not purifying it, we're emulating it. People can't see the difference between what we're supposed to be and what we are. The church has got to set a standard that is closer to Christ than its surrounding community. So to that end, I am calling men and women in this room to a standard that separates us from the pagans around us. This morning, if you feel like you're in that camp, if you are a person who is struggling in this area, I'm just going to ask you to pray with me this morning. You know, you may have done this before and you say, well, I've tried. I've tried this and I've tried this and I've tried this. And it's my experience that most men at least find themselves in this brer rabbit of goo. They, they were just putting their toe in, seeing what it was like to look at. The rest of the world gets to enjoy this. How come I can't? And they get themselves in that and it gets enmeshed and you're stuck and you can't pluck that stuff off of you and it gets part of your soul and your brain 
And before you know it, you begin to justify it and you think it's okay. If God really wanted me to stop, he would have done something in my life. It's right here in the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. He who looks at a woman with lustful intent, the meditative gazing at someone for personal pleasure, free yourself. There is freedom. There is a way out. It starts with prayer. It starts by saying, God, I've messed up. I want that wonderful marriage. I want to be that man, that woman that represents my children. I want to be that Christian at work that doesn't have to fear exposure. Somebody might find out. I want to be pure. The Holy Spirit is calling you to purity this morning. If that is you, we're going to pray right now. We're going to pray a prayer of repentance, a promise of revealing, a desire to resist, and a commitment to repeating this as often as we need to. Uh, this is not a sin that you can just go, bam, it's done, it's over. That happens for some people. But for most of us, it is an ongoing process. I have to do this on a routine basis because it will come back for you. Most of us can still remember pornographic images we saw 50 years ago. We have to control up here. We have to stop our impulse. So if you're with me this morning on this, and I know this is not for everybody, and I know this isn't the only reason that marriages fail, but if this is uniquely and purposefully you, pray with me right now. Close your eyes. Oh, God. I want to be the man that you want me to be. I want to be the woman that you want me to be. Free me of my addiction. Free me of my voyeuristic tendencies. I pray, Lord, I repent. The blood of Christ is sufficient. It makes me anew every morning. I ask your forgiveness. For looking at things that are pornographic, for having images in my mind that objectifies women as something other than what you created them to be. Father, I ask your forgiveness for not seeing your image in all women, in all men. I am sorry for that. It is my purpose this morning to repent. I'm going to change my mind, my heart, my direction. If I'm storing any of this stuff anywhere in secret, Father, I commit myself to this day not going to sleep tonight until I rid myself of it. May I purify my computer. May I put passwords on there. May I join whatever I have to do, my covenant eyes, whatever. Father, I will do that today. I do repent of this. And Father, I will promise to reveal. I will talk to my wife. I will talk to my spouse, and if I'm not married and I'm stuck in this, I will talk to somebody I respect, and I will reveal this so that the power of darkness has no more strength and hold on me. Forgive me for my cowardice and my fear. And Father, I purpose to resist this going forward. I will not do this again. 
That is my heart intent. But Lord, I am a weak person. And if I fail, I promise to repeat this, to pray again to you, to reveal to somebody that I need help beyond myself. I can't do this on my own. Father, may I find somebody that I love and know who is spiritually mature, who can help walk me through this. Father, may as a church, all the men in this room who have prayed this prayer, may they be faithful, may they be successful. May they rid their lives of that which does not please you. Amen. And as we close, I want to address marriage for a second. It's one thing to focus on pornography. It's another thing to focus on marriage. There are those of us who are not putting the effort into our marriages. They can be wonderful. They can be awesome. But all of them can also be taxing, tiresome, frustrating. That person that we married didn't turn out to be the person we thought they were. We can't do anything about that other person, just to be honest. All we can do is about us. And I want to pray a prayer of commitment to our marriages today. If you find yourself married, it doesn't matter if you're the husband or the wife, you have to be faithful before God. You have to, in faith, live every day that he is taking pleasure in your preparation. You have to think, I am supposed to live this married life as if Christ is preparing his bride for his return. And I haven't done that. Men, and I, I address you because that's what I am, nothing is better than marriage. You have to have the faith to believe it can be different tomorrow, that you can be different tomorrow. We as a church have got to get our act together. We pray for a revival, but revival's not going to happen until the Lord's church is purified, is strengthened, is stops being full of hypocrisy in this vital of all relationships. So if that's your heart this morning, then pray with me real quick. Father, we have a wife, we have a husband, wherever we are this morning. We need you. Oh, it's been so difficult. It's been so hard. That person we married turned out to be somebody different than we thought they were. We don't seem to have joy anymore. But Lord, I give you my right to be happy, to be fulfilled. I put it under the blood of Christ because all I have to be is faithful. Help me to change. Not to focus on that other person, but to focus on me. Help me to change and be a loving, gentle, patient, kind person that you want me to be. Father, forgive me for entertaining ideas of affairs, of happiness, of green grass somewhere else. I will stay faithful to you. Like Hosea in the Old Testament, Lord, I will live for you no matter what circumstances you put before me. Father, may I be part of the efforts to make Parkview the kind of church where people can come and see that we follow this seventh commandment in its fullness. 
I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.